I'm Christopher Pisaridis, the previous holder of the Sosno uh, chair. Um, the speaker tonight is Francesco Caselli. He's a professor at the LSE at the, in the economics department and uh, member of the Center for Macroeconomics. And um, he's the holder of, this, of the Norman Sosno chair and giving the inaugural talk. You might, many of you wonder when I was holding the chair at least, Many were asking me, who is Norman Sosno? Well, Norman Sosno um, is, um, was a, um, someone trained in, in economics who was tra tragically killed at the age of 23 in an, uh, in an air accident in 1969. And um, his parents decided to, um, in his memory, to uh, start something known as the Norman Sosno Travel Scholarships. And that's what they are doing now as well. They've recently published a book about the history of the scholarships, which has biographical notes on, uh, on their son Norman as well. All their connections with the UK, I mean, they live mainly in Australia, a little bit in the UK, Israel as well. All their connections with the UK, where, where Norman Sosno studied as well, were at the University of Cambridge. So it's a complete mystery why a family only with Cambridge connections and travel decided to. Uh, endow a chair at the LSE, but obviously that's not the kind of question you ask the family. You just thank them and, and take whatever you're given. And the, the first holder of the chair was um, Charles Goodhart. I think the chair probably started about 20 years ago, I think, and we're very pleased that Francesco um, accepted the offer of the department to take the chair, so we look forward to what he has to say. I was going to be introduced by the director of CEP, and I was upgraded to be introduced by a Nobel Prize winner. So I think I gained in the, in the change. Um, so I, I chose a, a topic that uh, might sound a little bit uh, cryptic. Uh, uh, is it a curse? And uh, of course, uh, many of you probably already figured out that what I'm really referring to here is the phrase natural resource curse, which has become almost a cliche in discussion of uh, development and the determinants of development. So what's the idea of the natural resource curse? The idea is that countries that are very rich in natural resources, be it mineral deposits like oil or gold or diamond or uh, timber or maybe uh, arable land or a climate suitable for producing uh, cash crops like coffee or cocoa, countries that are endowed with uh, rich um, gifts from nature of these abundant resources may actually end up being worse off because they have these, uh, these resources. Now, that's a very paradoxical conjecture to formulate. Normally, you would think that if nature decides to give you a gift of free stuff, whether it's oil or, or good soil, um, that you can then turn around and sell to the world in exchange for manufacturing goods or services or food, you should be better off. That should increase your, your prosperity. So why would we ever doubt such a simple and natural uh, view, which, which is a view that which natural resources are a blessing? Uh, well, it's one reason is that uh, we keep reading about horror stories from the press, in the media, in the news, uh, that associate natural resources to less than desirable outcomes. What are these outcomes? For example, we read about stories that link natural resources to corruption. Most recently, perhaps, and very frequently referred to in the news these days, 
is uh, Brazil, where Petrobras he stands accused of having uh, paid uh, uh, enormous amounts of illegal payments to uh, political parties. Just last year, we had a similar scandal in Nigeria, where the central bank governor, the then central bank governor, accused the political elite of stealing billions and billions of dollars uh, in oil. We often hear accounts of auto autocracy, of drifts towards autocracy, that link these change, political changes to natural resource wealth. A lot of discussion of Russia, for example, which is, by most accounts, drifting towards increasing authoritarianism, associates this drift toward authoritarianism to the fact that Russia is a very oil-abundant country. There are countries in the Middle East where we coin the phrase for petrostate. And the word petrostate, yes, of course, refers to uh, heavy dependence of the economy on oil, but it also has assumed increasingly a connotation of authoritarianism as part of the way the government is run. Coming to, I use the phrase horror stories uh, deliberately because coming to even more horrific uh, kind of type of news, uh, civil war is often associated to uh, natural resources. Most famously, perhaps Sierra Leone, where there isn't even a Hollywood movie depicting how, uh, allegedly at least, uh, the particularly horrific civil war that took place there was linked to uh, diamonds, both as a motive for the fighting and also as a fuel for the fighting, because it made it possible for the parties to finance the fighting. And more recently, for example, Sudan, the, the civil war in Sudan that led to the partition of Sudan into Sudan and South Sudan is also often alleged to have been motivated in part by a desire to um, uh, establish uh, control over the oil deposits. And even now, the current fighting within South Sudan between different factions is often associated or believed to be associated to a fight over the oil. And last but not least, international war has been often linked to uh, natural resources. Again, very famous cases abound, but perhaps the most topical is uh, uh, Iraq's invasion of Kuwait in 1980 that led to the first Iraq war, the first Gulf War. Uh, some people think that the second Gulf War was also motivated by oil. Um, right now, everybody's worried about what's going to happen in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, where China is uh, increasingly at loggerheads with its neighbors over control of these seas, which are thought to have considerable natural resources below the um, uh, seafloor. So there are reasons why people start doubting about the undisguised nature of the blessing of natural resources. These are evils in themselves. These are just by themselves. There are un undesirable outcomes that uh, make us worry about uh, natural resources. But it goes deeper than that. Uh, economists, many economists, I certainly myself included, think that these uh, political features or political mechanisms are themselves causes of poverty, or the development of failure, failure to growth uh, of low GDP. And so here you can start building a, a, an hypothesis about, indeed, a natural resource curse. In this hypothesis, these un undesirable, these adverse political consequences of, polit of natural resource riches make, have also adverse effects on the economy, and perhaps these adverse effects are so severe that they negate the direct benefits of having natural resources that you can sell to the world. 
Now, the problem, of course, for a social scientist is that these are just stories. They are anecdotes. Uh, and it's very hard to know, A, whether they truly reflect a causal mechanism from natural resources to these political outcomes. Uh, you know, maybe Brazil is just a very corrupt country. If they weren't stealing Petrobras money, they would be stealing some other money. Um, maybe Russia was going to go autocratic even without the oil, maybe because of its imperial history or nostalgia for its imperial history or because of the legacy of communism. Maybe the Sudanese were fighting for religious reasons or ethnic reasons and not over the oil. So it's hard to be sure that the natural resources are really causing these adverse effects. And the other problem is that we don't know how systematic this is, how general is this. These are examples, these are particular cases, but is this a systematic effect of natural resources on these political outcomes? So that's what social science is about. Social science is about trying to go beyond the, the anecdotes, and the, spe the special cases, and the, and the little stories that we can tell, and try to come up with more systematic evidence. Now, up to even less than 10 years ago, maybe even just eight or seven years ago, had I been giving this talk then, I would focus my presentation mostly on cross-country evidence. What's cross-country evidence? Cross-country evidence asks the question, let's compare different countries. Let's compare, in particular in this case, let's compare, compare countries that are abundant in natural resources with countries that are poor in natural resources. And just ask, is life better in places where natural resources are abundant than in places where natural resources are scarce? How do countries that are rich natural resources compare to countries that are poor in natural resources? So based on the premise, I would perhaps spend quite a bit of time describing pictures like this one. And I would spend actually very little time describing pictures like this one, for reasons I will tell, but I need to describe it. So in this picture, um, every dot is a different country. And uh, on the horizontal axis, I'm showing the position of this country related to the horizontal axis is a measure of how important natural resources are in the economy of this country. Natural capital, in particular, is a measure of the value of mineral deposits, of arable land, particularly arable land that can be used for coffee, cocoa, cash crops, timber resources, and things like that. And it's all scared by GDP to capture how important is this natural capital, or this natural wealth, in the overall uh, economic activity of this country. On the vertical axis, I'm measuring, I'm, I'm plotting an index of corruption. This is produced by an advocacy group called Transparency International, which essentially surveys businesses in different countries and essentially asks them, you know, how often are you asked to pay bribes? Pretty much that's, that's what they're doing. Of course, it's a very coarse measure of corruption, but it, it tells a, a pretty convincing story. So again, 10 years ago, I would say, done. Okay, look. Natural capital is high, corruption is high. Natural capital is low, corruption is low, we are done. It's true. Natural resources make countries more corrupt. Now, to be honest, even 10 years ago, a lot of people would have known that this is very flimsy evidence. And this is very flimsy evidence for many reasons, but I will just highlight one in particular. Just, just look at which countries are we looking at. Okay, so up here, the most corrupt country in the world, according to Transparency International, is Sudan. Certainly a very resource-rich country. One of the least corrupt countries in the world is Switzerland. Certainly a very resource-poor country as a share of GDP. Now you can already see where I'm going. It's very, very, very hard to tell that Sudan is more corrupt than Switzerland because it has more natural capital. 
because the differences between Sudan and Switzerland are so many that it's very hard to pin things down to a particular factor. Sudan has very different institutions. Sudan has a very different legal system. Sudan occupies a very different position in the geostrategic map of the world. Sudan has a very different history, including colonial history. Sudan has a very different culture. Sudan has a very different ethnic composition. And so every time you compare across countries, you always have in the back of your mind that there are a million other things that could be driving these relationships. And it's very, very hard to say that this correlation that I'm showing here is causal, represents a causal effect. So what I want to do today, really, is to tell you how, over the last very few years, there has been a resurgence of research, a flurry of research, uh, that tries to go beyond the cross-country approach, that tries to make progress, go beyond correlation, uh, and more towards causation by skewing the cross-country approach and taking a different approach. And the good news, I think, uh, you'll be the judge by the end of the talk. The good news is that I think this, uh, this recent research has made considerable progress towards uh, more credible, more, more persuasive uh, claims of causation. The bad news is that this research confirms all our worst fears about what natural resources do to countries. It will, I think, I'll try to show you, it will confirm our fears about corruption, our fears about autocracy, about civil wars, about international law. Now, the unified idea, the unifying idea, I will show, I will show you very different uh, strategies and approaches, but the unifying ideas for this research over the last six or seven years is to go not across countries, but within countries to look within countries, to avoid comparing Sudan and Switzerland, by comparing Sudan with Sudan and Switzerland with Switzerland. So what do I mean by that? Well, it comes in different flavors. And I want to give you an example, examples of the different flavors this come in. The first flavor I want to talk about is within countries across regions of that country. And I will illustrate this with a study from Brazil that I did with my colleague here at the LSE, Guy Michaels. So this is Brazil, hope you recognize it. And there are two things I've drawn besides the map of Brazil in this picture. First of all, there is this spider web of gray lines. The spider web of gray lines represents municipal borders. Municipal borders, so essentially county borders. Think about them as county borders. So, you know, obviously in the Amazons that are very sparsely populated, municipalities are very big. The closer you get to the coastline, which become more dense, the smaller the municipalities become, but you still have borders, you still have municipalities. And municipalities are administrative units, much like counties are here, except that they have much more power than here. Municipalities in Brazil do many more things that counties do in the UK. Now there is another thing I plot here, which is the red dots, the red uh, blotches or, or stains. Okay, and those stains, the red stains, represents oil fields, oil fields. Okay, so that's literally geographically, that's the footprint of the oil field. And so some of them are onshore, some of them are offshore, but there are these oil fields. So in its simplest form, the within country approach says, let's compare life in municipalities with red dots, with oil, with life in municipalities without red dots, without oil. 
That's the, the essence of the approach. That's the essence of the strategy. Now, why do I think this is better than looking across countries? Well, think again about the reasons why I told you not to believe the cross-country evidence. Well, those reasons are that countries differ because of institutions. They are the same here, it's just one country. Legal system is the same here, it's just one country. History, position in the geostrategic map of the world. History, culture to a large extent, much more similar within countries than across countries. Ethnic composition, to a large extent, much more similar within a country than across countries. So many of the things that we were worried that would confound any inference of causality across countries are removed when you look within countries. You compare it much more like for like. And so when you see that life is or is not different in red dot municipalities from, from uh, uh, non-red dot municipalities, you can be much more confident than you're capturing something causal, a causal effect of oil, uh, of oil or whatever natural resources you happen to be looking at on outcomes. Okay, so that's gonna be the idea, that's gonna be the strategy. So what do we find? Well, the first thing that we find is that municipalities that happen to have oil tend to experience large revenues to their municipal governments. So this is supposed to be a city hall. I don't think city halls really look like that in Brazil, but this was a picture I found of a city hall. Uh, so if you, have, um, if you have oil, the municipal government gets lots of money. And this is big money, by the way, by the uh, municipal budgets. Now, that actually didn't come as a surprise. It was no surprise to find that municipality with oil get much more money than municipality without oil, because the Constitution of Brazil said that they should. The Constitution of Brazil says that if you're a municipality with oil installation on your territory, you are entitled to large royalty payments from Petrobras. Okay, so it was no surprise to see that indeed these payments occur. So these municipalities are getting lots of money because they uh, host oil infrastructure. Now that's nice for us because one of the ways we worry about oil even at the country level is that when a country finds oil, there's going to be some multinational going in, prospecting, extracting, and selling the oil, and paying large royalties to the government. So if we see that, see that these royalties, if you can find what these royalties do at the municipal level within Brazil, it may give us an idea of what royalties do at the country level for other countries. Now we can also do the following. Brazilian municipalities, like any government, has to publish a budget. This budget has to say how they spend their money. They have revenues, they have expenditures, they have to say where do, where do we spend the money, how do we spend the money. And so we can compare, we can look at the written budget, the reported budget, the reported expenditure of municipalities with red dots, with oil, versus municipalities without oil. And when we do the comparisons, red dots versus non-red dots, what do we find? We find that the municipal governments with red dots report that they build more hospitals and they hire more doctors and nurses. They report that they build more schools and hire more teachers. They report that they build more social housing compared to municipalities without uh, oil. They report that they do more garbage collection. They allegedly build more roads. They say they provide more electricity more welfare payments, a few more things. Okay, this is, looks beautiful. The money is coming in, it's going out to do good things for the people, great. 
Brazil is a fantastic country for a million reasons, but one reason why social scientists like Brazil in particular, it has, it has fantastic data. And one type of data that you can find about Brazil is not only what governments say they spend on hospitals, schools, garbage collection, but you actually can get data on how many hospitals actually can get built, how many schools get built, how, many social, how much social houses get built. You can actually look at this data and compare it to the spending that the government says they're doing. So we're going to ask this question. Do we see all these beautiful things that the government say they're doing? Do we see, in particular, that the red dot municipalities actually build more hospitals and schools and so forth? What do we find? We don't find any more hospitals. We don't find any more schools. We don't find more social housing. We don't find more garbage collection. We don't find more roads. We don't find electricity. We don't find more welfare payments. We don't find lower poverty. We don't find higher incomes. We don't find anything. Okay? In terms of actual outcomes on the ground, in terms of impact on people's lives, we don't find any difference between red dot municipalities and non-red dot municipalities, despite the red dot government saying that they are doing much more in these areas. Mystery. This money comes in, it disappears. Now, now you're going to say that I'm very mean, I'm cynical, or I lack imagination. But to us, when we find, see the money coming in and we don't find where it's going, the natural conclusion is it's going in some of these pockets. Okay? It's going in the pockets of the mayor and the group around the mayor. So that's evidence for us for corruption. We actually have a little bit more than that. It's just, just a conjecture. We can find a little bit, we can find some kind of circumstantial additional evidence for corruption. So one thing that we do, for example, is to look at the news. So with these searches of news, where we looked for instances where a municipality's name comes up in the news in articles which also use the Portuguese word for mayor and the Portuguese word for corruption. Okay? It turns out that red dot municipalities come up in the news much more often in news stories which have the name of the municipality, the Portuguese name for mayor, and the Portuguese name for corruption in the story. Finally, the last thing we were able to do, because Brazil has this amazing data, we were, we were able to compare the size of the houses of municipal officers versus everybody else. And again, we compare the difference, the difference in the quality of the housing of municipal offers and everybody else in red dot municipalities and non-red dot municipalities. In red dot municipalities, the disproportion between the size of the houses of municipal officers compared to uh, everybody else is much bigger than in non-red dot municipalities. Again, it's not a, this is itself is not necessarily proof of corruption, but I think when you build all together these things, it does point in the direction of corruption. Okay, that's my um, Brazil paper, I have a few more things, but I'll, 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 I need to move on. Okay, so that was one strategy. Within country, across regions, and I showed you an example from Brazil. Now you, can, you can do a similar logic within a country, but across time. Okay? Instead of comparing regions of a country, you say, how do things change within a country? So it's still 
comparing Sudan with Sudan. I'm not, I'm still not, I don't want to compare Sudan with Switzerland. I'm still comparing Sudan with Sudan. But I'm comparing Sudan before and after a change in its natural resource wealth. So the first example I'll give you of this is a study I did with uh, Andrea Tesei, who from Queen's Mary College, and who's sitting there, uh, which looks at autocracy in particular. So what did we do in this study? We took many countries, all the countries for which we were able to identify what we call the principal commodity. What is the principal commodity? It's the commodity that this country exports the most. So for most countries, the principal commodity is oil. But there are many countries for which the principal commodity is coffee, wood, and so on and so forth. Okay? So now, for every country, we know which one is the principal commodity. Now, one way that your natural resource wealth changes is if the, if the world price of the commodity you sell to the world changes. If, the, if you're oil producers and the oil price doubles, your natural wealth has doubled. And so we can ask the question, for each country, given the principal commodity, what happens to democracy or autocracy in that country as the price of that commodity changes? Okay, so for example, Algeria, what happens to democracy in Algeria if the price of oil doubles? Kind of, this kind of question. So this is, this is a, a, a picture that kind of sort summarizes our findings. I spent a couple of minutes describing it and, and explaining it. So first of all, um, I have to describe to you a democracy index. We use a democracy index, which is produced by, um, which is called the Polity 2 index, uh, which ranks countries from a scale from minus 10 to 10. And basically, think about minus 10 being down here, that's the most autocratic you can be, zero being somewhere in between autocratic and democratic, and then 10 being as democratic you can be. And then we ask the question, what happens when the price of your principal commodity changes, in particular when it increases, for whatever is your different commodity, but we condition on the initial level of democracy. So, first, so in other words, we ask, say, imagine a country somewhere here, a democracy. Not maybe a lot of super democracy, but a democracy. What happens to democracy in that country when they find when the price of their commodity doubles compared to maybe an autocratic country? And what do we find? We find that by and large in democracy, if you already are a democracy, when the price of your principal commodity changes, increases, nothing much happens. You stay pretty much where you were. The, the democracy index doesn't change. But if you are an autocracy to start with, and the price of your principal commodity goes up, and the more you become more richer, natural resource, uh, your natural resource rich, uh, wealth goes up, you tend to become more autocratic. The more so, the milder the initial autocratic uh, level goes. So mild, mild autocrats, or maybe insecure autocrats, or um, um, autocrats that are still trying to establish their uh, grip on power, get a chance to become much more autocratic so that's an example of within country over time that speaks to the question of autocracy. Uh, I want to give another overtime example that speaks to the question of civil war. And this is another study by my colleague Guy Michaels, who looks, who looks at a different way in which natural resource wealth 
So the previous study focuses on changes in the price of the physical commodity. And that, of, of course, is a source of change in natural resources. But another way that natural resource wealth can change is if you discover something that you didn't know you had. Okay? And in particular, Guy Michaels is looking here at um, giant oil field discovery. Okay? What happens after a country discovers a giant oil field? This is just a map of the, where the giant oil fields are today. We haven't discovered it yet, but these are the ones we know where they are there. And so what we will, the question that you will ask is, again, within a country, comparing before and after, not comparing to the other species, but comparing within a country, before and after they find the giant oil field, what happens to the incidence of civil conflict in that country? And again, in the spirit of giving you a very brief uh, visual uh, sense of the result, is that the probability of observing conflict within a country spikes up about four or five, four, four to six years after the giant oil discovery. So this is the day where the oil is discovered. And these are the years after, these are the years before, these are the years after. And that's the probability of observing conflict. So five, four, five, six years after our discovery, you have an uh, enhanced probability, almost a 10% increase in probability of conflict. It's a huge increase. 10% point increase in the likelihood of conflict, civil conflict, following a giant oil discovery. So it's, it's a massive effect. Now, there are variations on the theme of this. So, for example, you can combine so just very briefly, this is, a, this is a beautiful paper that I didn't write, unfortunately, but I published it as an editor of a journal. Um, and so, I, I'm, so that's the next best thing to having written it. Um, and it looks at across regions and within time, and over time. So in particular, it focuses on Colombia, this one. Uh, in Colombia, there are, you have municipalities with oil, like that's the same thing as Brazil. Here, the dots are black, which makes more sense in a way. Uh, these are, uh, these are uh, municipalities. That municipality has oil, uh, white, and red. Uh, but they're going to do something even more sophisticated than we did for Brazil. They're going to ask, they're going to ask, is there more conflict in black municipalities than white municipalities? No. What they're going to say is this. When you see the oil price increase, when you see the oil price increase, does conflict increase disproportionately in black municipalities than in white municipalities? That's beautiful because it combines the cross-region and the overtime uh, variation. And what do they find? Well, here is again the summary of the findings. Um, so the, the, gray, the light gray line, that's the oil price. The black, gray, the black line is conflict, civil war, guerrilla attacks in particular, in oil municipalities, and the dotted lines is in non-oil municipalities. And the thing to take away from this is when the price of oil goes up, you see a spike in conflict, which is much more pronounced in oil municipalities than in non-oil municipalities. You see the same here and here. The oil goes up, price of oil goes up. Oil municipalities, the conflict spikes up. In non-oil municipalities, almost nothing happens. OK, so very um, OK, there's coffee, but let me just go. Okay. So now, so I've done. I've done um, within regions, I've done over time, I've done within regions across time. The next, the, and last, so don't worry, this is the last one I do, uh, is again within countries, 
still always within countries, but now across the neighbors, across the neighboring countries. So what do I mean by that? Well, I want to ask the following question. Let's take as many countries as I can. And for each of these countries, many of them will have some neighbors that have oil and some neighbors that don't have oil. And so I can ask the question, each given country, are their relationships more, pain, more peaceful with their neighbors that don't have oil than with their neighbors that could have oil? That's the basic idea, but actually, I would ask that even more interesting question. Among the neighbors that have oil, in some of these cases, the oil will be really near the border. In other cases, the oil will be really far away from the border. And I will ask the question, are relationships more peaceful when the oil is very far from the border or is very near the border? Okay? So why do I think these are interesting questions? Well, now I need to take you through some reasoning that we went through when we thought, uh, by the way, I should acknowledge my author on this project, Dominic Kroner and Massimo Morelli. Why, why do we think that it is? So I need to take you through some reasoning, which is a reasoning that led to this study. And to do this reasoning, I will just give you a, a simplified map of the world. This is my map, this is my world. My, my world is a line, okay? And in this world there are two countries, country A and country B. And there is, of course, there is a border. Okay, so all this, this line represents location in country A. This location here is near the border. This location here is far away from the border. Now, country A and country B could have reasons to fight with each other that have nothing to do with all. Maybe they just don't like each other, there's a history. Maybe there's an ethnic group in country A which is similar to country B, and maybe country A is not very nice to help them. Whatever. There may be a reason to fight. Okay. What I really want to know is, suppose that country A discovers oil. Okay, somewhere in the I put it here, kind of halfway between the borders and the end of the world. And um, suppose country A finds oil. What happens to the incident of conflict? How much more often will oil or less often will they fight if country A finds oil? Of course, this is motivated by, again, the example of Iraq, for example, you may think away. Most people think that um, Iraq, in this case, invited, invited Kuwait because they wanted to capture the oil fields in Kuwait. So one conjecture is that if one country has oil, compared to the situation where neither country has oil, we should see more oil, because the other country is tempted to pounds. A more interesting question is, what happens as this oil moves closer or further away from the border? Okay? So for example, what happens if the oil in country A is actually closer to the border? <coughs> our reasoning, our intuition is that conflict should increase. Why? Because now country B is contemplating the prospect of a localized border war. All they have to do is to capture maybe 10 miles in country A's territory, they get the oil. And maybe, you know, there are many other things that make this attractive, not just that you have only to drive 10 miles, it's also that maybe the local population is more sympathetic, so they are basically more similar. Um, whatever, maybe the border is contested to start with, so the international community will say, well, fine, it wasn't clear, it was there, so start. Compare that to having the oil very far from it. Now you have to drive your army very far, very deep into the other country, very stretched supply lines, 
populations become increasingly hostile, international community becomes increasingly hostile. So our prediction is that the closer the oil is the border, it is one country the oil case, the more conflict we should observe. Okay, that's, so that's one prediction. That's one kind of country we want to check. Now another question is, okay, country is oil, that's worse than when I country is oil. What happens to country B? Well, here I deliberately put the oil in country B. I'm the same distance from the border. I think it's roughly the same distance. The same distance from the border from country A. Well, you know where I go. Now, country B, yes, there is still this nice oil in country A that we want to capture, but of course, if you start a war, you never know how, how it ends. Okay, you go on the attack, the others fight back, fight back. You may, yes, you may conquer country A oil, but you also may end up moving on. So our reasoning, our priority reasoning, leads us to say that in a situation where both countries have oil, compared to the situation where only one country has oil, there will be less conflict than when only one country has but again, the more subtle and interesting question is what happens as we change where the oil is? Okay, so once again, imagine why we move country A's oil towards the border. Well, once again, I think for country B, this becomes a more attractive proposition. They need to win a local war. Country A needs to, live, to win a global war to get the oil. And so again, we think that if you move one, uh, if you move in the direction of asymmetric location of the oil, where one country's oil is going to the border than the other, we should see more conflict than when it's symmetrically positioned. Uh, so more conflict, and of course for the same reason, if countries oil move away from the border, then the likelihood of losing your own oil in case of conflict becomes less and less. That should make countries more than actually fighting more, and so again, more conflict. So the conclusion is that so, actually, a number of conclusions that I want to bring back. First of all, one country having oil is more conducive to conflict than neither country having oil. Both countries having oil is less conducive to conflict than when only one country has oil. But perhaps most importantly, in the case of when one country has oil, is the proximity to the border that is really the driving force for country, the other country's desire to attack. And when both countries have oil, it's the asymmetry. Is the asymmetry of the location of the oil that we report. The more symmetric it is, the less likely they will fight. The more asymmetric it is, the more likely. So what do we do? So this is the reasoning now of what's empirical work. The empirical work is to get data for as many countries as we can, not only on whether they have oil or not, but also where is it. In particular, where is the oil compared relative to the borders with their neighbors. And then ask the question, is it true, for example, that when one country has oil, the likelihood of conflict is higher when this oil is near the border? And similarly, when both countries have oil, whether the likelihood of conflict increases, the more asymmetric the location of the border. And all these relations come out to be true. It's all true. So one country having oil is more likely to have conflict than another country. Both countries have oil less likely. Oil in the border more likely of Asymmetry more common. But what is very stunning is the magnitude of this effect. So the last, the last bit I want to say about this study gives you a sense of the magnitude of this effect, because they are truly, truly stunning. Okay? So again, I'm going to use this picture to illustrate the magnitude of the findings. Okay? 
So let me start with a benchmark. I'm going to take a benchmark the case of two countries, a pair of countries, where neither country is I said before, countries fight for other reasons, unfortunately, they Okay? So, countries fight. Um, so, in our data, in our data, we can measure the, the baseline likelihood of conflict in a, every, in a random year, in a random pair of countries, when oil is completely absent. In a pair of countries where there is no oil. That baseline is 3%. Okay? So, 3% of, of the time, uh, a pair of, a random pair of countries without oil will be fine. I don't know if you think that's a lot or a little. If you have children, you know that's a little. But this is, this is, what, um, this is what the data says. And now we want to compare that to a situation where there is oil. Okay? So the first comparison I will make is I will give oil to one country. But I will put this oil very far away from the border, as far as I can, as far as the data can keep, as far as I observe oil to be away from the border in my data. So what happens to the likelihood of conflict in the data when you give oil to one country, but it's oil is very far from the border? It goes up. But it goes up very little. Okay? It goes up from 3% to 3.5%. Okay? It's almost So, a situation where neither country is oil, and a situation with one country is oil is only very far from the world, that is almost a But now, I'm going to ask what happens if they move the oil all the way to the world? And the likelihood of conflict triples. Likelihood of conflict triples. It's three times more likely that there will be conflict if the, board, the oil is on the border than if the oil is very dry. So it's all in the location. It's all in where the oil is. It's not so much where the oil is there, it's where it is. So let me now look at the case of two countries. So again, Bayesian is 3%, another country is oil. Now let's look at the perfectly symmetric case. So there is oil, but it's perfectly symmetric to Again, it goes up. So oil does go up. But it changes not that big. It goes from 3% to 4%. It's not a huge increase in that number. What's going on? Well, again, yes, now there is something to fight over, but there's also something to lose. And so it's not so surprising, given our reasoning, that we don't find a huge increase in that number. But now, let's look at a very asymmetric case, where one country has oil at the border, and one country as far as we can possibly observe away from the border, and the probability of conflict is more than that. Again, it's a huge effect. Again, the location of the oil is all the story. It's really where it is that matters. Okay, that's what I wanted to say about that study. And so let me sum up uh, across these few studies I described. I started out with anecdotes and total evidence of corruption stories, really from the news, of corruption, about autocracy, about civil war, about international war. What I showed, I, I hope, is that by adopting a within-country approach, whether it's across regions over time, across regions and over time, or across neighbors, you can actually make some progress in going beyond these anecdotes and say something causal about the effect of majority stories. <coughs> and unfortunately, these evidence all points in the direction that we were hoping not to find, I guess, which is that uh, majority sources do indeed have this dark side. 
the heavy side of leading to this very undesirable political outcome. Now, of course, this uh, begins to answer some questions, and, but as always, in social science, it also raises many other questions. Perhaps the biggest question that, in my view, remains unanswered is what I call the norm. So yes, I mean, in, in the, if you pick a random country from the world and ask what is natural resource wealth doing to this country, it's bad stuff. Okay, it makes it corrupt, it makes it violent, it makes it autocratic. But clearly, there are some countries in which this doesn't happen. Norway is perhaps the most spectacular example because it's, you know, it's almost like hidden on Earth apart from the weather. Uh, but, you know, Canada, perhaps Australia, you can think about other cases that are also relatively clean, not, certainly not non-autocratic, certainly not, not violent in the same of civil war or international war. So there are countries, few maybe, very few maybe, but there are countries that manage to escape the resource course. It's not an inescapable. And the big question is, what's special about this country? Why, why does Norway manage to be Norway? Uh, and uh, the whole answer is, I know it. I know it. And I think this is the big question. I mean, some of my colleagues think it's all about institutions. That Norway happens to have very strong, solid, resilient institutions that shield it from this adverse political effect. I find that answer completely plausible and completely unsatisfactory. Precisely because of the evidence I showed you today. I showed you evidence that showed that natural resources actually shape these institutions. They cause democracy. They cause civil war. They cause international war. So I don't see any way of convincingly saying that institutions are somewhere there in an environment that is unaffected by the natural resources. Natural resources shape the institutions as much as the institutions shape the response of the society to naturalism. So there must be something different. What is it? Is it history? No idea. Is it ethnic diversity? Maybe. Norway happens to be a very heterogeneous country. Is it inequality? Well, Norway is a very equal But I don't know, because sometimes, in many cases, when you see a lot of inequality in some of these uh, resource-rich countries that have the bad outcomes, uh, sometimes it's precisely because they're not resource-rich that they are. So it's very hard again to establish clear uh, causality. Do we have to end up to culture, which is what economists always try to avoid? I just don't know. What I know is that there is a lot of exciting and novel research, and new techniques and new data that people are trying to bring about this question. So I'm pretty hopeful, quite confident, that in the years to come, uh, there will be, begin to be, to be answers. Maybe there will be even answers before I pass on the social chair. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Francesco, for, for a really interesting uh, talk. As, um, as someone whose uh, country of birth has just discovered a lot of natural wealth, I'm um, obviously very, very worried about that, that Cyprus, for those of you who don't know her background. <laughs> Very worried about international war, which um, probably has more than doubled since uh, we discovered the natural wealth. But but in everything else, we are going to be like Norway. 
which will disprove your the, the culture question because if Greek and Norwegians start behaving the same way, that's obviously explanation is not culture because I don't think you could have more cultural diversity within Europe than we do. But um, we have plenty of time for questions. So we'll um, Later, so <laughs> unless unless there's something I don't know from what I can see. <laughs> Hi, um, Pawn Savannah saying I'm in a PhD candidate in the government department. Okay, you need to have to speak up even with the no speak up even with the. All right, Pawn Savannah saying PhD candidate in the government department. Um, I want I had two questions. First of all, ex the the. The across-time uh, measurement of autocracy within your, your four examples of different kinds of evidence and uh, case design is the only one that features uh, non-oil um, resources. So I wanted to ask whether you found, at least within your review of the literature, differences between hard and soft resources. Because I feel like non-oil, I mean, um, you know, other kinds of copper, gold, all those kinds of things have other kinds of dynamics to them. Secondly, with regard to the Norway question and other Norway and your study of Brazil, Brazil is the only country within the countries you mentioned, even though they were anecdotal, which regime type wise within your study is not autocratic to start with, right? Um, and so, and Brazil, I suppose, okay, well, aside from that, um, when we're thinking about Norway or Brazil, um, I wanted to ask whether within this list that you have behind you, the time period of the boom is something that's been factored in. The time period? The period in which a natural resource boom occurs. So, for instance, 2002 to 2007 is the first time in a very long time since brief periods in the 70s where you've had... Uh, commodity booms in both hard and soft and other kinds of booms simultaneously within the global economy, right? So in the 70s, you've had some periods of can hard, we, can, hard commodity can, can booms, but not soft commodity booms. Yeah. One just answer quickly, actually. Okay, so... Um, answer one at a time, I expect. Sorry? One question at a okay. time to answer yeah. Yeah, so I mean, your point, the first question is uh, there seems to be a lot of on oil and very little on other uh, commodities, and you're completely right. I mean, the, and that's, it's purely, a, it's purely a, um, artifact of data availability. I mean, we have lots of data on oil, we have much less data on other uh, commodities. Um, now, uh, there is, however, one study that I skipped on, which is actually extremely interesting, uh, and it's this Columbia paper. It's, it's, it's within the same Columbia paper I described. That Columbia paper, one of the things, one of the reasons why it's so beautiful is that it doesn't just do oil, it also does coffee. It looks at uh, coffee municipalities, uh, and, there is, and there it, it, the reasoning is very different. What, what you might expect for coffee is very different, and, and let me explain this. When you think about the effect of oil on civil war, it's about grabbing the oil. It's about taking it. And so you might expect that if the price of oil goes up, then the price from taking the oil goes up, and so you might expect more conflict. But for coffee, you might have very different expectations. Because in coffee, what really matters, for, uh, in, when you look at coffee uh, regions, it's not like you can easily just capture 
coffee fields and unexploited them. It's, you know, you, re, you still need the work. You know, it's, it's, it's very, it's, they're very extended. They're not concentrated. It's, it's very different. So when you think about the price of coffee and its effect on civil war in coffee abundant municipalities, what you think about is the following. You think about a different mechanism. When the price of coffee goes up, the opportunity cost for potential soldiers to engage in guerrilla, to, beca to become recruited, recruits for guerrilla, it goes up. Because these workers are now better off working in the coffee fields. So you reach the conclusion that perhaps for coffee things are very different. When the price of coffee goes up, you should see less conflict, not more coffee. Not, sorry, <laughs> not more conflict. Uh, precisely because the, the, the cost of recruiting the cost of recruiting uh, uh, soldiers to the civil war has increased. But that's exactly what these guys find. So here is a, another picture from that paper, which doesn't look at the price of coffee, but looks at the, pr the price of oil, but looks at the price of <coughs> coffee. So the, the gray line here is the price of coffee. And the, um, the, uh, the, 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 dark, the dark line is civil conflict in coffee municipality, and the dotted line is civil conflict is in non-coffee municipalities. And here you see the mirror image of what you see for oil. When the price of coffee falls, that's when civil conflict increases in coffee municipalities. Precisely because that's when the soldiers are cheap. They're cheap to record. And so, come to your questions, yes, certainly there must be differences across different natural resources. I think the main difference is how labor-intensive the exploitation of these resources. So when you look at minerals such as oil, gold perhaps, coal, in these cases, when the value of this commodity goes up, I would expect to see more conflict because of the grabbing effect becomes more important. But you have very, when you have very labor-intensive commodities, such as coffee, for example, I would expect the opposite to happen. And, and this is a very beautiful piece of evidence that does confirm that, that logic. So maybe I've given too much time to one question. Sorry. Sorry. Yes. Uh, member of public, uh, the first question is, uh, all these empirical evidence focuses on average effect of oil and kind of blinds us to the large variation that we see within oil-rich countries or resource-rich countries in terms of growth and economic development. So it's not just the Norway question, it's the Indonesia question, Malaysia question, Botswana question. So don't you think we're asking the wrong question that oil is good for de development or not? Instead, we should ask why oil is good in some cases and why oil is bad in other cases. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, and I think that's, but the only part that I disagree with you is that this is a different question from the Norway question. I think this is, this is the Norway question. But the Norway question is a very extreme form of what you asked. That is, of course, the point you're making is that there is a continuum of responses. Okay? There, are, there are countries in which we see horrendous outcomes, countries that we see mediocre outcomes, countries where we don't see anything bad. Okay? So it's, I, I, as a rhetorical device, I call this the Norway question or the Canada question, but you're completely right. It's really about heterogeneity in, in responses. So I can only re reiterate what I just said. I think that, you know, this, this first wave of research is picking up the average effect. You know, the, the, the thought experiment is precisely the one I described. Pick a random country or a random pair of countries in the case of war, and what would you expect on average? And the, the work of the next 10 years will have to be about 
Why are these, these, these outcomes different in different places? I completely agree with you. I think there's a question there. Hello. I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the role of other um, culprits like uh, Dutch disease uh, and uh, the macro instability related to price volatility? And uh, given that this uh, might act at macro level, do we have less uh, uh, research strategy to, to find casual uh, evidence in favor of these uh, since they act at macro level? Yeah, so both points. Let, let me just give a little background to, to your question for, for people who are less familiar with, the, with this thing. So, in fact, I, I have been abusing the word the natural resource curse in my presentation because I have immediately from the get-go associated this term, this phrase, to, political, to a political resource curse. But of course, as many of you know probably, originally the phrase natural resource curse was coined for a different kind of mechanism, which was not political but more strictly economic. Uh, which had to do with uh, things like the natural resource sector um, absorbing, taking away resources from the manufacturing sector, uh, which perhaps in many cases people think is, is a more dynamic sector of the economy, or causing exchange rate overvaluation. Um, uh, well, these are basically the, the two main mechanisms that people have thought about originally when they thought uh, about natural resource curves. And so um, economic mechanisms through which uh, uh, resource abundance would uh, uh, cause a, 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 a impair the economic performance of a country, and it also alluded to um, macroeconomic instability. That is, uh, the idea there is a bit different, but the idea is there is that um, if you are very specialized in natural resource, in commodities, and then the price of these commodities fluctuates as it does, then your economy will be subject to be buffeted by shocks to the prices, and that could be, have adverse effects. So I, no, no, sorry, that was just a premise to the answer. <laughs> uh, so now, now the answer. Uh, the answer is, uh, let me take the, first, the second part first. You asked me whether it's, it's hard to detect uh, systematic evidence for this. Yeah, in part it's hard, but, but I think there is work uh, on this. So for example, here at the LSE, um, my colleague Silvana Tenreiro, I think has a paper that is quite compellingly shows that when you look at what ca causes the volatility of a country, it's very rarely it's uh, sectoral shocks, shocks to the price of a sector or to a particular sector in which they specialize. It's not something that has much to do with the specialization of a country. It's much to do with aggregate macro shock at the country level, such as civil war, for example. So I, I, do, I do think that the evidence is not that strong for, that, um, for, for those more economic mechanisms. Uh, and for that reason, I tend to think that maybe they're there, but they're not that important. I, I, that's my hunch. I cannot prove it. But my hunch is that these political mechanisms are much, much more important. And that's why I dived immediately into the politics in my discussion of natural resource culture. <coughs> Uh, yeah. Yeah. No. <clears throat> it probably won't make any difference, but... Uh, Thank you. Okay. Ah, yeah. So I was thinking about the case of Botswana, which has been turned the African miracle, and looking at what you had listed before for the Norway question, you know, it's basically the one country in Africa that hasn't experienced a resource curse and is... the largest producer of diamonds in the world and also was the fastest growing country in the world for a very long time. Yeah. And so 
because it you know was a British colony, it has a similar history to a lot of other countries, say like Sierra Leone, for example. Um, it's not a particularly homogeneous country ethnically or culturally. Uh, I forget what the other one was. But so I guess my question there is that if it's not the stable political institutions that were established prior to their discovery of diamonds, then kind of what would the explanation for them not having a resource curse be? I have no idea. I would give an arm. <laughs> I would give an arm to know the answer to that question. I mean, Botswana is Botswana is the country we want. We all want to understand. I mean, this is this is really. A, I mean, I'm, I have to be honest. I don't have the answer on that. I mean, I'm writing I, an essay I, about it. So sorry. I'm writing an essay about it. So I was <laughs> hoping you could help me. <laughs> Let me just say, uh, in in the list, in the list, I put up uh, for possible answers to the Norway question. I didn't put luck. Um, but, you know, maybe, maybe I should have. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, you didn't. Yeah. Hi, thank you for your talk. Uh, I think uh, it is a very complicated issue of how all these oil resources across the world and other uh, resources are uh, so easily consumed by not the country themselves and those the profits are lost. Do you think uh, the analysis that been created here in the LSE, not just from you, but is tainted by the fact the LSE itself takes so much money from oil companies uh, over the last decade. Oh, God. And how do you think that has affected the output for trying to resolve and understand these issues? Thank you. Okay, let, let me just say the... the um, so... <coughs> The Brazil paper was written before I ever heard of the Libya thing, so at, at least it wasn't, uh, you know, it, it wasn't in my mind. I, I also think, you know, I, would would someone, uh, you know, I, I, in the end, I end up saying that that the natural resources bring corruption, they bring autocracy, they bring civil war, they bring international wars. I mean, do you think that the Libyan government would be happy for me to say these things? I mean, I'm not completely sure. <laughs> Yeah, let's take one from the other side, actually. Hi. So uh, it seems like there's convincing evidence that natural resources cause these bad things, but the point of finding causes or identifying causes is to uh, propose solutions. And uh, the solution to this problem is obviously quite hard. Um, so do you have any ideas, some kind of global governance mechanism, just awareness? Yeah, I mean, I have some ideas that are very commonsensical and, 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 and very basic and, and perhaps naive, but uh, let, let me just put, put a couple of things out there. Um, I mean, for corruption, for example, in, in, the, in the Brazil case, we, we were try, one thing that we try to figure out um, is, is there any way, any reason to expect uh, oil money to be easier to steal? than other types of money, like taxation, like, like tax revenues, things like that. And so there is some evidence that people are much more ignorant about how much money comes into government coffers from natural resources than they know how much is coming with taxes, for example. So if you go around Brazilian municipalities and ask people, how much money do you think the municipal government is getting from oil? People get it massively wrong. They underestimate it by enormous amounts. Whereas if you ask them, you know, how much money do you think the government is getting in taxes, they don't get it as wrong. So one, one thing that 
may be there, I say may be there, is a big role for information. Just you know, telling people how much money the government is getting from these things. Uh, and that you know, may help with accountability, for example. That's, that's one, one, one stab at it. There's one, one over there. <coughs> Yeah, I also have, I have a double question, actually. One is about um, the evidence. So you showed evidence for that oil prices, um, oil price increases would lead to more autocracy, etc. Um, did you see the opposite effect as well? And the question related to um, the gentleman over there would be, on, on the basis of the evidence that you presented, would you recommend, and you know, given the fact that you say we don't know why this is happening, would you recommend that oil should be left in the ground um, by countries where it is a new di discovery at the moment? On the second one, I would make every oil field a Norwegian protectorate. Uh, <laughs> uh, if Failing that, my, my hunch is yes. I mean, I, I would go as far as that. I would say leave it in the ground. Pretend it's not there. Uh, on the first question, which was, ah, which was whether we see asymmetries um, in when, when oil prices go up towards uh, when oil prices go down, uh, I think most of the studies that I talked about, uh, I, I have to say honestly, they don't really look into that that deeply. And one reason for that is that once you start looking for asymmetries, you are splitting the samples in two. You get you know get a sample where prices go up, one sample where prices go down. So you start having very few observations, and so it's, it's hard to make stronger. Um, Inference, statistical inference based on that. But by and large, as far as I can tell, there is no evidence of asymmetries. That, you know, that uh, when prices go up, you get these things going one direction. When prices go down, they go in the opposite direction. That would be my, that would be my hunch based on what we have seen. But we need better, better work on that before we say it. So the answer, the, the answer to your first question seems to imply that you think that if we didn't have oil, the world would live in peace and no. <laughs> prosperity. No. Norway should produce oil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay. so. Thank you very much for your very clear presentation. Uh, I'm just going uh, out of a class on uh, labor migration, where we discussed a paper on natural resources, curse, and uh, immigration, actually. Where a very controversial paper where this guy was basically saying that countries with natural resources uh, need labor, so they need immigration. Uh, because uh, they want to reduce, because the governments want to reduce the revolutionary threats from these uh, coming flows of labor, then they're uh, redistributing more, and this uh, redistribution, in the end, uh, stabilizes the autocracies. It's a very far-fetched kind of relation. I don't know if you have heard about other papers linking immigration and the resource curse. The guy was basically arguing that a big part of the resource curse was not the natural resources, but the immigration coming in. I can't comment. I don't. I. I. I need to check the study. I. Can't, I, I don't know it. Um, I, the premise of it is a little strange, though, because as I pointed out before, oil in particular is is a, not a very labor-intensive uh, sector. In fact, one problem that oil-rich countries have, if anything, would be the opposite, in my view, which is that it creates a very large class of young, unskilled people who don't have jobs. 
um, precisely because the oil sector is so um, is so is so capital intensive, i.e., the opposite of labor intensive. So, I find this, the whole premise a little hard to to accept. But I need to I need to learn more about that. I mean, there is one there is one great there is one very interesting paper that I know about about the labor market effects of oil, which looks at the effect on um, being uh, naturally resource rich on women, on the status of women. And the argument there is that, yes, oil is uh, uh, not a labor-intensive sector, but that labor that it uses is very physical. And so the workers in, country, in countries where there are abundant oil, the demand for labor is disproportionately skewed towards men. And if you look at these correlations, and this is just correlations, uh, the status of women seems to be much worse in countries that are abundant in oil. And this is not just in the Middle East. Even if you drop the Middle East, you still find that women are a little worse in countries with abundant oil. There's a Norway question again. A Norway question again. <laughs> okay. that's, that's quite, do you have a question? No? Behind me. My question is on democratization of natural resources again. So to what extent do you think the fluctuation of oil prices can explain the development of events in the Middle East and North Africa over the past four years? By events here, I'm referring to the so-called Arab Spring, if you like to call it. It's hard to tell because obviously the Arab Spring also happened in non-oil-rich countries, like Egypt, for example. Uh, and you know, Syria is not particularly oil-rich. I mean, there is some oil in Syria, but not that much. So it's hard to. I mean, I I, I would be totally shame, shameless if I said that uh, I can explain the Arab Spring with oil or with the lack of oil. I I don't want to speculate. Google explained the Arab Spring by the access to the internet. There you go, a natural, natural resource. <laughs> Hi, thank you for a very interesting talk. I'm just kind of um, sort of curious about, you did mention a little bit about um, data before discovering the oil in the countries. What was the situation in those countries before, how stable they were? And obviously if the countries were unstable, oil increased instability massively because there were instabilities in the country. Like in Norway case, obviously, there were no instability. I don't know anything about Botswana. Do you know whether the Botswana situation before discovering diamonds, how much conflicts were in that country before? Have you looked at those kind of? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, someone should look at that. I, I, I don't know the answer. Um, is, um, Actually, actually, no, I do know the answer, because the, the guy Michael's paper on civil war actually does, does I think, condition, uh, does condition on the history of civil war before the uh, oil discovery. So, so actually, someone did look at that. My recollection is that he didn't find systematic differences along those lines. But I, I need to check again. OK. Hi, thank you for the very fascinating talk. Uh, there are also very extensive research done on the management of sovereign oil wealth in, in the form of sovereign wealth funds. So do you think that that could be a possible solution for countries like Brazil, given that, for example, 
Norway has done it so successfully. That's the reason why countries such as Malaysia and Abu Dhabi is able to preserve much of their wealth. Do you think that could be a solution? And if not, what are the difficulties faced by Brazil? No, I don't see it as a solution at all, because if you have a country where the politicians are bent on stealing the money, um, setting up a national wealth fund, a sovereign wealth fund, will, um, will not, you know, it's still run by politicians. I mean, the politicians are still deciding. I mean, look at Nigeria. Nigeria, a few years ago, set up a, a sovereign wealth fund. Seemed like a fantastic idea. And the rule was that all the... Um, all the revenue over a certain amount would be uh, stashed away in the, in the sovereign wealth fund. And then, I think less than two years later, the parliament passed a law that reduced the amount that would be stashed away. And you know, you, you start, then you start chipping away at the, at the, at the sovereign wealth fund and, and you, you're back at square one. So unless we find what is, you know, unless we find the Norway recipe, you know, Norway is a sovereign wealth fund, but it works because the politicians don't, don't raid it. Uh, if, you, if you don't have the conditions in place where uh, politicians don't raid the, the sovereign wealth fund, then there is no point in having it. Yes, yeah, exactly. Any other questions? Yeah, the one behind you. Um, I was wondering whether these causal effects, and especially corruption, differ depending on, if there's any evidence, depending on who is extracting the resources, local government, local companies, foreign companies? I'm not aware of any, any research on that. On the, top of my he- on, on the top of my head, I can't see any difference. But uh, yeah, uh, that's a good question. Someone should do it. There's a question here. Hello. Um, I was wondering, because when you showed the other graph about uh, democracy, um, it was showing that countries which are already democratic, that they got more democratic when the oil price goes up. Well, it didn't change. It didn't change? Yeah, it didn't okay. Change. But uh, my question was, isn't it then more the, the situation in the country before the resources found, which defines or which determines if the curse occurs or not? Yes, to some extent. So this, this goes, this, again, this goes towards, the, this is the, the one bit of my presentation that addresses to some extent, a little bit, hints at the answer to the Norway question, because it says if it happens in a democracy, the effect is zero, but if it uh, happens in an autocracy, it makes it more autocratic. But it's still problematic because you still have to explain why uh, the countries that are democracies are democracies. Why did, why did these guys manage to be democracies? And why these other guys are autocracies to start with? So it, it's, a, it's a beginning of a piece of, or it's a small piece of the puzzle, but, but it's, it's still behind this, there is a question of what, what allows some of these countries to be democracies to start with. But then it's a question not if the resources are good or bad for the country, then it's a question why are some countries better governed than others? Yeah, but, but again, but remember that the natural resource uh, boom causes a change. So that's, that's exactly what the picture shows, that it causes a change in democracy. Okay, so it's not just, so for example, th- those guys that were autocratic to start with, they become even more autocratic. So we can see that things are responding to the natural resource wealth. So it's, it's a very partial story. It doesn't tell the whole story. Same question here. Yeah. 
Hi, thank you. Um, my question really was, while I agree with the approach to focus within countries, if I could just talk about the Sudan um, in that context. Um, Sudan obviously had many years of civil war um, before the discovery of oil, and could it not be argued that in that instance, during the negotiations of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, that the, the agreement on wealth sharing and what role oil would play actually helped broker a peace agreement. I'm certainly not saying that it has nothing to do with the conflict in the last 20 years or it hasn't played a role, but the fact that the, the, the kind of price of peace was seen as higher as the, than the cost of war for participating soldiers actually helped broker a, a multi-stage peace agreement. It's only part of it, but... Is that not a case where that wouldn't explain a natural? It, that would be a natural resource, both causing or helping to cause a conflict, and also helping to resolve a conflict in so, context. So of let oil. me see if I understand what you're saying. You're saying Sudan was a very unstable country before it found oil, and in fact, it turns out in your in the story that you describe that the existence of oil made it possible for the parties to find a way of making peace. Yeah, because the discovery um, post-dated the actual yeah, conflict no, I understand. and exporting. Yeah. Look, so let me say two things. The first thing that I want to say is precisely because you are able to tell this story, which has some possibility to it, that's why we need to find systematic evidence. That's why it's not enough. You know, my first slide was about anecdotes. And you and I could talk about Sudan all night. And I would have a story where oil caused conflict, and you have a story where oil actually helped end the conflict. So that's exactly why, and your story is as legitimate as mine. So that's exactly why I spend the rest of my lecture trying to look at systematic evidence, systematic cross-country evidence, within-country evidence, to establish causation rather than chasing possible stories. Now, on the specific story that you say, I mean, they're fighting again. Not only they're fighting between Sudan and South Sudan, they're fighting within South Sudan. So if that, you know, it's hard to see oil having played a very positive role there. But, you know, my, my real answer is the first answer. It's precisely because you are able to tell me an alternative story about Sudan that I need to go to the data and do systematic social science, which is not telling stories but looking at data. There's a question here. Thank you for the presentation. My question would be, so you've looked at a lot of the, uh, the natural resource course and what happens with countries that have natural resources or that discover that they have natural resource reserves. What is your prediction when countries run out of these natural resources? Will that like, uh, increase the likelihood of conflict or will, it, or will it revert conflict back to its levels before these natural resources were discovered? When they run out. Yeah, when they run out. Are there many cases of countries running out? No, your prediction. I'm asking for a prediction. Well, the prediction is the same as, so think about, so someone asked about asymmetric effects when they go up and when they go down. So my tentative, my tentative impression from the, from the evidence is that when prices go down, you get the same effect, but in reverse. So, you know, less corruption, more democracy, uh, less conflict. So I'd be tempted to extrapolate to a situation where uh, you run out uh, and saying it should uh, lead to a lessening of all these political evils. Thank you. And the last question out there. Eight o'clock. 
Thank you for the presentation. My question is about uh, talking about oil revenues. Uh, we cannot neglect the uh, the oil-rich states in the Gulf region, in the uh, Gulf Arab region. And uh, my question is, uh, how do you see the oil revenues affecting those countries where they have already oil revenues since their countries has begun? Uh, so actually, before even data was available, and uh, we cannot test the the disease effect or the natural resource curse. And actually, those revenues help those uh, countries to build institutions and to build the economy. So how can we relate the resource curse effect to these uh, particular countries? Thank you. Countries in the Gulf region. The countries in the Gulf region are one of the reasons why we worry about a resource curse. I mean, the, the most... Um, I mean, the clearest issue is the issue of autocracy. I mean, these are very, very illiberal countries, very repressive countries. I also talked about the women, you know, the effect on women. Uh, if they, what, what you observe on the ground is completely consistent. And if, it's not just consistent. It, these countries are one of the reasons why we talked about the resource school. We, niche, we initiate this research project. So I, I would tend to lump them with all the other resource-rich countries. I, I, would, I would tend to think that it makes them more prone to, uh, to autocracy, to rent-seeking, to, uh, to, to potentially to violence, and, and so on. I, I don't see them as being different from, from others in that, in, that, in that respect. Okay, well, it remains to thank Francesco for a very interesting uh, lecture. One last round of applause.